You know, I'm really interested in expanding the the context for thinking about food and, you know, recognizing that it's so much more than the flavor of the food, the consumer experience of buying the food, you know, even the nutritional value of the food and that it really sort of, you know, connects us into a web of life that we are part of. Practicing fermentation at home is just such a, you know, great way to start focusing in to those biological connections. I'm not saying it's the end of the process. I'm saying it can be a beginning of the process. Welcome to Voices of Esalen. I'm Sam Stern. Today we welcome my fermentation hero, Sandor Katz. He juiced me up with his book, Wild Fermentation, back in the old days. Sandor has taught hundreds of workshops demystifying fermentation and empowering people to reclaim this transformational process. His book, The Art of Fermentation, received a James Beard Award and was a finalist at the International Association of Culinary Professionals. He was named one of Chow Magazine's top provocateurs, trendsetters, and rabble-rousers. Now, this self-described fermentation fetishist has a new book, Fermentation Journeys, and we get into it. But first, this. Join wisdom keeper Erica Gagnon November 8th to 12th for Healing Wisdom for Modern Times. You are your greatest healer. Learn about ancestral lineage, rites of passage, ceremonies and rituals, sacred altars, medicinal plants, and the origins of disease in physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual bodies. Participate in a water prayer blessing, a sound healing journey, and a traditional South American healing ceremony. Book your spot now at esalen.org workshops. And now here's my conversation with Sandor Katz. I want to ask you a favor. Hopefully this won't be too tedious for you, but I was wondering if you could do a couple minutes on the just basic benefits of fermentation for the benefit of those out there who just might not know in order to ground the discussion. There are always practical benefits to fermentation. So, I mean, first of all, let me just say that, you know, anything we could possibly eat can be fermented and, you know, fermentation is practiced in every part of the world. When I think about, you know, why is this phenomenon universal? The conclusion that I have come to is that the reason that fermentation is practiced everywhere is the simple reality that everything we eat, all of the plants and all of the animal products that make up our food are populated by microorganisms. And so there's a certain inevitability to microbial transformation of our food. And, you know, not every microbial transformation of our food results in something delicious that we are eager to put into our mouths. And, um, you know, most of the food that we would discard, uh, things that we would decide, you know, things that have decomposed, things that are rotting, you know, we have a whole other vocabulary to talk about, you know, the microbial transformations that are undesirable. But, you know, the fact is, you know, what, what microbiology is illuminated for us is that, you know, all the things we eat are populated not by some singular microorganism, but by elaborate communities of organisms. And, you know, the, the operative question in fermentation is which organisms are going to grow. So when you ferment food, first of all, you are preventing it from decomposing into a disgusting, ugly mess that nobody would ever want to put into their mouths. And then at the same time, you're deriving other practical benefits. So, you know, one of those might be flavor 
fermentation creates, you know, most of the most compelling, uh, uh, wonderful flavors in the world. You know, some of the flavors of fermentation can be controversial, um, but it creates strong flavors. And, you know, coffee is fermented, chocolate is fermented, beer and wine are fermented, vanilla is fermented, um, soy sauce and fish sauce are, are fermented. All the other condiments we use are based on vinegar, which is a product of fermentation. So, you know, fermentation creates these strong flavors and we can't disregard the importance of, of, of flavor. You know, beyond transforming the flavor of food, uh, many foods are preserved by fermentation. Cheeses might be explosions of flavor and texture, but, you know, at a practical level, they are strategies for preserving this most perishable of food resources, milk. So, you know, cheeses are about preserving milk. Um, sauerkraut, pickles, kimchi, olives, these are all about preserving vegetables. So, um, you know, not every fermentation is about preserving. Nobody uh, uh, ferments grains or beans to preserve them because they preserve so well as long as you keep them dry, which is how they are in their mature state. So, you know, certain ferments are really essential strategies for uh, preservation, which have really, you know, enabled people in many environments to survive. Um, um, but other ones are, are, are not. You know, then foods are transformed nutritionally by fermentation fermentation. And because the world of fermentation is so vast, it's a little bit hard to generalize. You know, it's not as if, you know, salami and bread and sauerkraut and natto, which is this uh, Japanese soybean ferment. It's not as if these all have, you know, precisely the same nutritional qualities because they don't. But the, the, the process of fermentation transforms nutrients and foods in some very clear patterns. And I would say there are four primary ways in which um, uh, uh, nutrients are transformed. Number one, I'll call pre-digestion. This is the simple idea that while the food is fermenting, nutrients are being broken down generally into simpler, more accessible forms. So the protein in soybeans that can be so hard for our bodies to access get broken down into amino acids, the building blocks of proteins. Lactose in milk, which so many people have a hard time digesting, breaks down under fermentation. Uh, gluten in wheat and rye and certain other grains breaks down not from a yeast fermentation, but from a bacterial fermentation, which means that sourdough breads, other breads made with natural leavening that includes bacteria as well as yeast, um, you know, have diminished gluten content, which makes them easier to digest for many people. The minerals in um, grains are generally tied up in chemical bonds called phytate bonds that our bodies can't easily break down. But un under fermentation with lactic bacteria, those bonds break and the mineral content becomes higher and more accessible for us. So there are a lot of, you know, pre-digestion just makes all kinds of foods, um, the nutrients in many kinds of foods more accessible to us. Um, then number two, I would call detoxification, which is almost the same thing as pre-digestion, except instead of nutritious compounds being broken down, it's potentially toxic compounds. So cyanide in cassava, gets broken down by fermentation. Oxalic acid in uh, uh, lots of plant foods gets break, broken down under fermentation. So, you know, there are just like examples of foods all around the world that cannot be eaten safely without fermentation. The fermentation, you know, makes an otherwise dangerous food safe to eat by breaking down something toxic. 
The third way that food is transformed by fermentation, I would call nutrient enhancement. So almost every fermented food or beverage has elevated levels of B vitamins as compared to the original food that you start with. So elevated B vitamins, certain ferments have very high levels of K vitamins that are generated during the fermentations. And then there are these micronutrients. I, I think they're, they're metabolic byproducts of different ferments. And, you know, this is a very new area of investigation, but some of them are being found to have, you know, specific therapeutic uh, uh, benefits. So for instance, fermented vegetables, sauerkraut, kimchi, and the rest contain these compounds called isothiocyanates that are regarded as anti-carcinogenic that are generated as a byproduct uh, of the fermentation. Natto, this Japanese soybean ferment that I, that I mentioned earlier, in, in, in the coating that develops on the soybeans, there's this um, compound uh, known as natto kinase, which, um, I mean, you can buy in any vitamin supplement store in North America uh, these days, uh, but, but it's associated with uh, dissolving fibrin. Fibrin is those the fibers that sometimes accumulate inside people's blood vessels that can constrict circulation. So there's a lot of interest in natokinase for this particular application. But what I would consider to be the most profound nutritional benefit of fermentation, the live bacteria themselves. And, you know, not every fermented food has living bacteria still surviving. I mean, certain for a loaf of bread, you know, if you want to eat sourdough dough raw, and who wants to do that? It's teeming with bacteria. But once you put it in a hot oven and bake it into a loaf of bread, the bacteria have died. So, you know, we just have to, it's not say bread is a bad food. It's just to illustrate that, you know, certain fermented foods are cooked or heat processed after they are fermented. And those are not dependable sources of the live bacteria. But the significance of the live bacteria in raw sauerkraut or kimchi or uh, yogurt or other um, uh, dairy products that are not cooked after their fermentation, the significance of these bacteria are that you know they can help to restore biodiversity in the gut. And, um, you know, we're learning more and more about how important bacteria are to our functioning and well-being. Bacteria enable us to digest our food effectively. They synthesize nutrients so we don't have to find them in food. Our immune system is largely the work of bacteria. And, you know, we're learning more and more about ways in which bacteria in our gut help regulate chemical systems all around our bodies, including our brains. And, you know, there's new research suggesting that, you know, serotonin and other, you know, chemical compounds in our brains that determine how we think and how we feel, you know, are regulated in ways we don't fully understand by gut bacteria. But, you know, there's a growing um, uh, body of research indicating that probiotic therapy, improving the um, biodiversity of bacteria in the gut can potentially even improve mental health. So I think that there are a lot of, you know, potential benefits from restoring biodiversity in the gut. And, um, you know, I, I don't think you need to eat a lot, but, you know, eating small portions frequently of living ferments, um, you know, can be a really profound uh, uh, health practice. Thank you so much for that. That was so useful and so inspiring. I'm like, I want to go out and heal my gut a little bit more. What would you say to somebody who's kind of like interested in fermentation, but they don't feel like they have kitchen aptitude or they don't feel like they have the money for it or, or something like that? I would love to hear you talk to this person and, and, and also speak about being self-taught in the fermentation realm. 
Sure. Well, I mean, you know, uh, I, I mean, I would encourage people to sort of, you know, not limit themselves in that way. I mean, obviously, the only way you, you know, build greater comfort in the kitchen is to try things in the kitchen, follow recipes in cookbooks, or, you know, now YouTube videos, like anything you could possibly want to make, you can find a YouTube video and watch somebody making it. I would just say like, get over it, try it. Like, you know, like aptitude in anything, you can get better through practice. So, so, so try it. Now money, that's an interesting, more complex question because, you know, the, the, the fact that so many new fermented products are showing up, uh, uh, you know, on the shelves, especially of specialty stores, um, you know, that are primarily accessible to more affluent people is causing some people to think that, you know, fermentation is really only, uh, you know, relevant or of interest to, you know, people with a lot of disposable income. You know, I mean, I mean, I certainly can see that, you know, we have all of these new products that are sort of turning up in this context. But, you know, I just like to remind people that, you know, sort of fermentation is the ultimate in, you know, practical uh, uh, use of food. I mean, you know, all of these fermentation, you know, practices developed as ways for people to make effective use of whatever food resources are available to them. You know, the United Nations has published a whole series of publications 20 years ago, fermented fruits and beverages, a global perspective, fermented cereal grains, a global perspective, but really their perspective was in food scarce regions of the world, people could get more nutrients out of their food if they would ferment more of them. So they were really promoting fermentation specifically, you know, as a strategy for people who don't have enough food. And, you know, what I would, what I would say to people who, you know, feel priced out of the commercial ferments is, you know, the ingredients in most ferments are, you know, really, really the most common kinds of ingredients that are not expensive. So, you know, if you're put off by the, you know, $10 price tag of a pint-sized jar of sauerkraut at the natural foods market, well, maybe you should go out and buy a head of cabbage for a dollar and shred it and use a little bit of the salt that's already on your kitchen counter and a jar that, you know, some mayonnaise came in, uh, you know, that's sitting in, in your cabinet and you can just do it like you don't need a lot of fancy equipment. You don't need, you know, a lot of precious ingredients. You know, it, it really just takes a desire to do it. I mean, I also hear from people who just say, well, it's not a question of money. It's just like, I'm so busy. I don't have time for this. You know, fermentation takes time. It takes weeks. Um, I don't have weeks. Well, if you spend 10 minutes shredding some cabbage, salting it, stuffing it in a jar, and then just put it aside for a week or two while you're living your busy life, then you'll have this jar of fermented cabbage. So when you're eating those quick meals where you're just like, you know, throwing a piece of cheese on a piece of bread and, you know, eating it while you run out the door, you can put sauerkraut on it and make it much, much more substantively nutritious. So I think that, you know, people who, who feel like they don't have time are the people who need to do this more than anyone. Nice. Thank you for that one. You're so easy to interview. I can ask you anything and you can give me some good material. Um, <laughs> let's talk about your book, Fermentation Journeys, out from, from Chelsea Green. Sandor, your writing is, is extraordinary. And it's easy for me to say that your book, Wild Fermentation, is my favorite cookbook or food book 
of all time. I got your cookbook as a birthday gift in 2007 when I was a little adrift. I got to say your book grounded me. It, it gave me something to do with my hands. It was affordable when I was broke and it injected life into me in this mystical, but also highly practical, very visible and tangible way. But it's funny because what drew me in really was the writing. And it's clear to me that you'd be writing no matter what. So I want to pose the question to you. What was it about the culture of fermentation that made you want to write there in particular? Well, first of all, thank you for the high praise. I'm, I'm so gratified to hear, uh, you know, when, when my books have been, you know, important in, in, in people's uh, path. So, um, uh, you know, that's about the most wonderful thing I can hear. Thank you. You know, I, I always liked writing. You know, in my youth, I envisioned, uh, uh, you know, possibly being a writer as one of my paths in life. But, you know, like so many young people, I just really didn't know what to write about. And, you know, I ended up in all these kinds of jobs. I, I had a variety of jobs in municipal government in New York. I had some jobs that were working for advocacy groups. I actually, I worked for a group called West Pride in 1987 and 1988 that was trying to stop Donald Trump from doing this uh, uh, a huge development on the west side of Manhattan wow. uh, called Trump City. You know, in the meantime, you know, developing my, you know, abilities to express myself uh, 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 with the written word. You know, I really fell into writing about fermentation. I mean, you know, I, it developed as a personal obsession uh, uh, in the 90s. Uh, you know, I was teased by my friends. I picked up this nickname, Sandor Kraut, because I was sho always showing up with sauerkraut and other fermented goodies at people's houses. And I was teaching at an annual skill sharing event here in Tennessee. And then in 2001, I had a conflict and I wasn't able to be at that event. And so I, I literally spent a month like writing all of my fermentation recipes. And then I, you know, I just went to a copy shop and made 50 copies of it. And as soon as I wrote that, it was so satisfying. It was so fun. It, it, it caused me to do a little bit of reading to have a little bit more contextual information for writing about these processes. And, you know, just the process of, of you know, self-publishing this, you know, 32-page booklet, you know, just made me realize this would be a great thing to write about. And uh, there's a lot more uh, uh, that I could say about this. And, and, and because I had, had self-published, uh, published this, it actually turned out to be fairly easy to find a publisher. The first publisher that I approached, Chelsea Green Books, uh, you know, loved my zine, loved what I wanted to do, uh, uh, liked my writing. And so, you know, I got a contract to write a book. And, you know, then my book tour kind of, you know, turned into a lifestyle as an itinerant uh, uh, fermentation educator. And, you know, that's what I've been doing, um, you know, ev ever since, really. I just ask you as an aside, do you have a favorite cookbook or a favorite food writer that inspires you? You know, a book that just hugely influenced me when I read it uh, 20 years ago was Sweetness and Power by an anthropologist, Sidney Mintz. And that book just like, you know, really opened my eyes to the ways that, you know, a particular food, sugar, really shaped so many aspects of, um, you know, the contemporary world that we inhabit. And so many of the sort of, you know, huge historical forces, you know, were largely driven by the, you know, desire for more sugar. So, you know, that was a hugely influential book 
in 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 my thinking. Um, I mean, in terms of cookbooks, um, you know, I love Claudia Roden's body of work, and I refer uh, frequently to her, um, you know, Middle Eastern cookbooks. And she also has a wonderful cookbook about Jewish cuisine that really, um, you know, acknowledges the diaspora and how, you know, varied uh, uh, Jewish cuisines are. Um, uh, you know, I love the, I love Mater Joffrey's books. Uh, they really sort of like, you know, introduced me to a lot of the basics of, um, uh, you know, Indian cuisine. Uh, in terms of more recent books, um, you know, I love Samin Nosrat's book, uh, 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 Acid Salt. I get them in the wrong order all the time, Acid Salt. Um, yeah. uh, but th that's a wonderful cookbook that, you know, really gets beyond recipes. And, you know, my, 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 my partner like read that book from beginning to end and, and just like, you know, it raised the level of his cooking so much. I mean, it really just got him sort of thinking about layering flavors and um you know so i really appreciate that uh, uh you know um, um michael twitty is a food writer who's who's doing amazing work you know kind of connecting you know food and history with you know identity and um and you know and psyche and um you know ancestry um and uh you know it's not a recipe book per se, or, or, you know, his work isn't focused on recipes, but it's really focused on, on, you know, sort of how important, you know, foods are to us beyond the level of physical sustenance. So, I mean, sure. I mean, I think, I, I think we're living in a time of, you know, a lot of, you know, exciting food writing and, um, you know, I, I, I love, I love being part of that. Yeah. Thank you so much for that uh, compendium. That's going to be really useful for the listeners of this podcast. Food is practical. Food is, you know, food is something we need, we crave, you know, but it's connected to everything else. You know, it's, uh, uh, you know, it's potentially our, you know, connection to the biological world around us. And, mm. and, and, you know, really until the last couple of centuries, you know, uh, you know, the, 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 the need to produce or procure food really drove people's activities and relationships with their environments. And, you know, like the food that sustains us is plants and animals that, you know, until we developed this, you know, uh, um, you know, global system, you know, was generally from around us. And so, you know, it really connects people to their environments, you know, mm -hmm. um, you know, the idea of food being like a consumer experience where you walk into a <laughs> store and you can buy anything, you know, depending on how fat or thin your wallet is, um, uh, you know, really changes food from, you know, being this, you know, experiential thing that we're either producing or procuring, um, um, you know, to something that we're just a consumer experience that we're going to buy. And that, you know, that distorts things. Let's talk about this, the invisible. I'm struck by how much of this work that underwrites fermentation is done by microorganisms, the unseen. Uh, you talk about how fermentation requires a cultivation of a relationship with the invisible world. I'd love to hear you speak a bit about that. You know, the, the, the organisms of fermentation, uh, like, you know, are, are not visible, or I should say most of the organisms of fermentation, because I mean, bacteria are never visible to the, to, 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 to our eyes, but certain ferments involve fungi that begin as microorganisms, begin as single cell organisms, but as they grow, they can grow into something that's visible. So for instance, 
uh, uh, Koji is something that's gotten a lot of attention uh, uh, in recent times. Koji is a Japanese word that describes um, rice or barley or soybeans or, or other foods grown with a particular fungus, Aspergillus oryzae. Uh, Koji is the Japanese name, um, but um, starters like this are used throughout Asia um, with, you know, different names and different particulars, but they all involve fungi growing generally on grains or soybeans and then used to make foods uh, as varied as sake, soy sauce, uh, miso, amazake you know, really a wide range of foods. It begins as a microscopic organism, single cells, but it grows into a visible uh, fungus. But in general, when we're talking about fermentation, we're talking about, you know, microorganisms that we can't see. And so, I mean, on the one hand, for many contemporary people whose primary point of reference for bacteria is how dangerous they are, it's easy to project danger. So, I mean, I would say in my career as a fermentation educator, you know, the question that I've encountered more than any other question is, you know, people, you know, holding up a jar of, uh, you know, cabbage and other vegetables that they've just shredded and salted. And they're looking at the jar and they're looking at me and they're, and they're saying, how can I be sure I have good bacteria in here and not some, you know, dangerous bacteria that might kill me. And so, um, you know, because of the invisible nature of bacteria, it's very easy for people to, you know, project anxiety. They know some bacteria can be dangerous. Uh, and, 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 you know, are they playing Russian roulette? Are they taking some chance? Like, you know, really, should they have a microscope for doing this? So I feel like half the work I do is just kind of reassuring people. Um, like, no, every time you, you know, salt vegetables, get them juicy, pack them into a jar or some other vessel so that they're submerged under their own juices. Every single time, Lactic acid bacteria are going to dominate, you know, even if there happen to be some cells of salmonella or E. coli or, you know, some other organisms that have been associated with food poisoning, the lactic acid bacteria are going to dominate. And as they acidify the environment, they are going to kill those random uh, 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 bacteria that could be pathogenic because it's very, it's very convenient for us that the organisms that make us sick can't survive uh, a, a, a certain level of acidity. So, you know, the acids just make food safe. And, you know, in terms of fermenting vegetables, which is usually what I'm showing people how to do, th there's no case history. There, you know, there, 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 are, there are really no known cases of food poisoning or illness from fermented vegetables. So, you know, it's incredibly safe. And, and when people are really, you know, really uh, um, uh, anxious, you know, I say like, if yours makes you sick, you're going to get a ton of attention because it's an unprecedented event. And, um, you know, everyone will want to be testing your sauerkraut and, and, and testing your family. But, um, but, but really don't worry about it because, you know, it, it's just a naturally self-protecting phenomenon. I mean, the fact is that fermented vegetables are much safer than raw vegetables. And I certainly hope that nobody is avoiding eating raw vegetables because, you know, there have been a few, you know, really outlier outbreaks here and there of vegetables that have been exposed to bacteria that can make us sick, generally from manure from a factory farm washing down over a field of vegetables. But even if you took vegetables like that, shredded them, salted them, pounded them or squeezed them to get them juicy, packed them into a jar, the lactic acid bacteria will dominate anyway. 
and will kill whatever kind of incidental uh, uh, pathogens might be there. Last year, Friends of Esalen helped us to survive closures due to the pandemic, fires, and mudslides. We're here today because of our Friends of Esalen. When you become a Friends of Esalen with a donation, your contribution helps us finance our day-to-day -day operations in Big Sur from staff to infrastructure. This year, our goal is to raise $450,000 and to make 300 new friends so that we can continue to keep our doors open for generations to come. Become a friend now at esalen.org give. Sandor, your book, Fermentation Journeys, is inspired by the travels you've taken, often as a teacher of fermentation. Would you be willing to share an adventure or a story from the book? You know, I'll say, you know, one place that I really sought out going to was China. You know, I've always been very interested in, in Chinese cuisine. I, I grew up eating Chinese food quite a bit uh, uh, in, in, in New York City. But as I got interested in fermentation, and you know, particularly focused on a on on a central interest in in sauerkraut and preserving vegetables. Um, you know, all the historical references I have ever found about you know where did sauerkraut come from goes to China, and the idea is that the. Um, that, that people in China have been preserving vegetables using fermentation for thousands of years, and that the nomadic people of Central Asia observed the techniques that were being used in China, adopted some of those techniques, and spread the ideas westward into Europe. And so, um, you know, I mean, my, my family ancestral background is all Eastern European. And so, you know, I was very influenced by, you know, flavors of Eastern European fermentation, was intimately aware of those. Once I got interested in fermentation, uh, you know, I found lots of information about, you know, how to make Korean kimchi, how to make some Japanese styles of pickles, but I really was not able to find anything in English about, you know, Chinese methods of pickling. And so it became something of an obsession for me to, 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 to try to learn about that. You know, then I had a, 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 a Chinese American student show up at one of my residency programs that I host uh, here where I live in Tennessee. She actually had a fermented vegetable business in Colorado where she lived. Uh, her name is Mara Jane King. And, um, you know, we became friends and stayed in touch after, after the workshop. And, um, you know, she ended up organizing with her mother who lives in Hong Kong where Mara grew up, um, uh, um, you know, a trip into China. Uh, um, her, her mother, Judy, uh, had uh, become friendly with people in this very small village in Guizhou called Qinfen. And, you know, we basically went and spent most of a week in Qinfen, um, uh, you know, right at the beginning of December, which is their sort of like, you know, end of harvest time. They're putting up lots of food for storage for the winter. It's a, you know, small village that a tourist could never find their way to. There, there's no tourist services there. Um, you know, we stayed in, you know, we stayed in a family's home. We, we, we ate with them and other families. And, um, 
um, you know, we just got invited basically to go from house to house and we made uh, a, a rice alcohol and, you know, we learned how to make various seasonings. We learned how to preserve um, a, a fish in a, in a bed of seasoned rice. We learned how to uh, uh, preserve pork the same way, um, uh, you know, and we learned about um, uh, pickling vegetables. And I will say being in this little village, it is, it is, um, you know, just so awe-inspiring and humbling to be in a place where people are, you know, pretty much um, subsisting by what they are able to produce. I mean, you know, I'm not saying they're subsisting 100% that way. They're definitely bringing in some food, but, you know, very, very little. And it's, you know, it's not, they don't have convenience shopping per se in this village. Like, you know, people would have to travel a distance to do, um, you know, any significant kind of shopping. So, um, so, you know, that, that was really extraordinary and I learned so much and, uh, you know, it is just so exciting for me to, you know, be able to share, you know, the things that I've learned, um, you know, both, uh, in that village and, um, all the other places that I have had the good fortune to be able to travel to. Yeah. And I guess there's a kind of a bittersweet element to the, the book fermentation journeys, just in that I know it was written during the pandemic when, a lot of your travel and a lot of all of our travel has been curtailed. You know, I had a lot of great travels planned in 2020. I, I had plans to go to Iceland. I had plans to go to Taiwan. I had plans to go to Peru. Um, so, I mean, certainly it was very sad for that to be canceled. But, you know, I mean, it, um, um, it, it was... Uh, it was a gift to have, uh, you know, a year to be at home to really devote myself to my garden, um, you know, and to have time to do this writing that that's been on my mind. I mean, I I always I've known for some years that eventually I was going to write a book like this, but. I mean, I was too busy traveling around, teaching, learning. Um, and, you know, I don't know when I thought I would do it, but, you know, eventually. And, um, you know, I, I mean, I also there's so many places I haven't been that I, you know, sort of have a desire to go to and, and learn from, um, you know, not least of which is Korea. Um, uh, so, um, you know, I, I, I guess I always thought I had a few more places I had to get to before I could do a book like this, but circumstances just dictated that this was when I had time. And, um, and, and I think it's great. I mean, I'm so happy to be able to, to share things and, um, you know, I think of, uh, you know, sharing what I learned about fermentation, you know, not as well, okay, the book deadline came, it's over. It's just, it's a constant in my life. And, you know, whether it's just, you know, talking to you for this podcast or, you know, presenting a workshop or, you know, writing another book some years from now, I will continue to, you know, share things that I learned because, you know, that's what this is all about for me is, um, you know, demystifying this process and, um, mm. Uh, you know, helping people see how varied it can be and ultimately how straightforward and simple it is. I want to, I'm okay. I'm going to steal a question from a great interview. I listened to with you and emergence magazine from last fall. They asked Sandor, what have you got fermenting right now in your kitchen? Okay. Well, I've got, I've got plenty of, luckily we have plenty of things fermenting in my kitchen right now. Let me just see if I can find the jar that um, uh, we just made this morning. Where did, oh, okay. Hold on one second. I'll, I'll be back in 10 seconds. Okay. So, um, my, uh, uh, 
my partner um, um, picked all of these little things in the garden. Uh, uh, they're these tiny little cucumbers that are called sour Mexican gherkins. These tiny little teardrop yellow, uh, uh, slightly hot peppers, some uh, string beans, some uh, garlic, some uh, uh, small red hot peppers, and they're just under a brine. And, and here he made a, a, a uh, it's called late summer special, although it's made in October. So, you know, mm -hmm. it's a little bit not, not a, a late summer. I also have a jar of kraut, pink kraut that is made from uh, um, white cabbage along with uh, a little bit of red cabbage. And so the color from the red cabbage bleeds and it all turns bright pink. Uh, I've just been replenishing my sourdough. Here's my sourdough starter. I'm, 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 I'm winding it up and I'm going to make some bread in the next couple of days. Let's see here. This is something I learned how to make in China, but this is a style of fermenting vegetables called pao tsai. And what's um, notable about it is that it involves a perpetual brine. So there's a so 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 a brine is a saltwater solution. In this case, I, I add a little bit of malt sugar because the woman in China, who I learned how to do this from, uh, used malt sugar. Um, uh, and then I have some seasonings in it. I mean, you know, it's a little bit different from hers. I mean, everyone we visited in China had like slightly different seasonings, and and you know, I realized this is part of how you know different families pao tsai is distinguished is by 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 the seasoning. So I have um, Sichuan peppercorns, uh, chili peppers, garlic, ginger, star, anise, uh, and a little bit of uh, dried licorice root. Oh. Um, um, and then, you know, vegetables in there. I have, uh, I have some cauliflower. I have a chunk of cabbage. Um, Oh, oh, and then I also have this um, uh, spice called black cardamom in it, which has a really, really lovely, uh, very distinctive uh, uh, flavor. So pao tsai, this, which is a, um, uh, you know, a uh, perpetual brine that I keep on adding more vegetables to. And I you know, just added vegetables uh, the other day to this. Um, here's something interesting. This is um, concentrated kraut juice. I call this eau de kraut. Whoa. So sometimes I, sometimes I just end up with like a couple of gallons of kraut juice and, um, you know, I'll drink smaller amounts of it. But when I have that much, I like to cook it down and concentrate it. I leave a little bit of it out raw to add in so that there's a little bit of a raw element. But, you know, this is like, you know, um, uh, uh, more acidic than vinegar. It's very salty. I use it in salad dressings. I, I use it as a seasoning. You know, last night I made like a stir fry and I put a little bit of this on the stir fry. Um, so I use it for all kinds of seasonings. Then um, uh, I, earlier I mentioned koji, which is this sort of, you know, Japanese name for a starter with a fungus uh, aspergillus oryzae growing on it. The power of koji is in the enzymes that it produces, and it produces protease enzymes that break down proteins into amino acids. It has um, amylase enzymes that break down complex carbohydrates into simple sugars. It has lipase enzymes that break down fats. So, I mean, it just can break down almost anything. So there's this contemporary Japanese idea called shiokoji, salt koji, and people mix koji and water and salt together. 
um, uh, and leave it at, at ambient temperature and then generally blend it into a paste and use that paste for marinating things. So all those enzymes, let's say you marinate a piece of fish or a piece of chicken in it, you know, the proteins will start getting broken down into amino acids, which, enha which enhance the flavors. They create umami flavors, um, uh, you know, soy sauce. That's just what, you know, very plain soybeans turn into soy sauce with all that flavor, you know, due to the, this enzymatic breakdown of proteins into amino acids. So um, I have some eau de kraut shiokoji, which is that, um, um, you know, reduction of sauerkraut juice mixed with shiokoji, which is just a wonderful, um, um, you know, explosion of flavor, but still with these enzymes that can break things down. And I just started another shio koji the other day. I grew koji on chestnuts, which grow outside of my house. Wow. And this, and then, so this is a chestnut koji shio koji. Um, and oh, from where, and, and, and I just watched this big bubble rise up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, bubble, bubbles. I mean, you know, the word fermentation is related to bubbles because it comes from fervere, which means to boil. And it's because, um, you know, long before science had sort of settled on an understanding uh, of, of, of what fermentation was, um, you know, people recognized the bubbles as being analogous to boiling. So, you know, fervere is the, is, is the Latin word that means to boil. And fermentation, the word ferment comes from fervere because it's sort of a form of cold boiling and, and you know, bubbles are how, you know, people historically have been able to recognize uh, fermentation. Oh, one other thing I, try, I started yesterday, I, I'm sort of gearing up to host uh, um, um, a small residency program uh, in a couple of weeks, but uh, uh, Miju, which is a, a, a Chinese rice alcohol. Um, so I, so I soaked and steamed some sticky rice and then once it cooled down, I added, uh, uh what are called Chinese yeast balls that you can buy in Chinese markets, uh, everywhere. Um, um, and, uh, you know, they have enzymes like koji, but also yeast. So, you know, they're a wonderful, easy way to make rice alcohol. And so it's just like the, the cooked rice, uh, cooled down the Chinese yeast ball uh, um, uh, that I crushed into a little powder and uh, and some water. And now I just have to wait for two weeks. Thank you so much for taking me into your kitchen. That's amazing. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. I mean, really, we could talk for two more hours, you know, if we show you <laughs> all, all the fermentation projects. A lot of them are, are ongoing uh, um, you know, projects. I mean, so it's not like right now I just started all those things, you know, a few of them I've started in recent days, but many of them are, you know, ongoing projects, but, you know, I'm really interested in expanding the, the context for thinking about food and, you know, recognizing that it's so much more than the flavor of the food, the consumer experience of buying the food, um, uh, you know, even the nutritional value of the food and that it really sort of, you know, connects us into a web of life that we are part of. Practicing fermentation at home is just such a, you know, great way to start focusing in 
to those biological connections. I'm not saying it's the end of the process. I'm saying it can be a beginning of the process. Uh, you know, the more we try to sever ourselves from the web of life, um, you know, I, the more environmental destruction we cause, the, you know, the, the, the less of a future we have. And so, you know, I think that, you know, by, by reclaiming our food as something greater than, um, you know, a consumer economic phenomenon, um, you, you know, the, 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 the better. And, mm -hmm. and so, you know, when I think about like the larger context for my work, um, you know, that's really what I'm thinking about is, you know, uh, uh, helping people feel motivated and empowered to reclaim food. Sandor Katz, your new book is Fermentation Journeys. It'll be out soon in bookstores. Um, I was wondering if you could just tell us how to find you out in the world out on the web. My website is wildfermentation.com. You know, the workshops that I teach I, I are all listed in there. There's information on my books there. Uh, also, I mean, I have links there to all kinds of fermentation-related resources on the World Wide Web. So, you know, if you want to learn more, my website is a really um, um, good place to start. I'm also I'm on Instagram as Sandor Kraut. It would be great to see you on a, on a cooking show. Um, uh, I'm, 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 I'm open to it. If you, uh, you know, if you have, if you have a cooking show you want me to be on, let me know. Let's try to do that. Sandor, thank you so much for joining us today. Okay. Thank you, Sam. It's been, it's been great. Today's show is produced in conjunction with Michelle McCrary and Peter Kobabe. Our music is by Nico Holloman. If you like what you hear, please subscribe. Email me with your thoughts at voices at esalen.org. Become one with the ground under your feet. Listen to the world around you. Becoming of the land, right relationship without dominance, understanding the terrains we inhabit with Vivian Sansour. Unlock the sacred trilogy of bird, soil, and plant, December 17th to 20th. Sign up at esalen.org slash workshops. Until next time, be well.